Alright, let's go ahead and get started. I'll pray and then we will get flying through our lesson. Alright. Dear Holy Father, thank you that you've rejoined us this week to discuss uh, both uh, the armor of God as well as um, this new topic of how to make choices that please you in the sinful world in which we live. I pray that you'd give us wisdom, that you would give us the ability to take all this information and not just keep it at the knowledge of facts level, but that we would be able to apply it to our lives a way that makes sense to us and is accurate with your word. Give me wisdom and clarity as I teach. Help me to be accurate to your word. And I pray that everyone will be engaged and um, understand what we're talking about. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, this week we are going to fly. The reason being is that uh, two weeks ago we had a rousing conversation but that delayed us from finishing the lesson. So we need to finish the lesson 10, which we uh, use to discuss the armor of God. And then we'll continue into this week's lesson, which is on making uh, choices in the real world. So the goal of our discussion a few weeks ago was to discover some of Satan's tactics to derail us in our sanctification and how we can stand firm in the face of his attacks. So we declared the title of this lesson, The Enemies of Grace, and we talked about specifically the devil. The week before that, we talked about the world and the flesh. So the goal, Satan's tactics, how in the world does he take us down? And we describe Satan in these six ways. That he's a created being. He's part of the angelic host. He is rebellious. He is our adversary. We mentioned that Satan's name in the original languages actually means adversary. So it's his very character, the fiber of his being, is that he's our adversary. He is very powerful, yet his power and his capabilities are limited by God. We saw that in the beginning part of Job. And we also noted, based on Colossians 2, that he is a defeated foe. That what Christ accomplished on the cross rendered Satan powerless. Yet, we still experience the frustrating effects of Satan's power in this life now. But he he has been given a certain death. And one day, he will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And Jesus will reign. And there will be no powers to uh, try to combat Jesus and us in our sanctification. And so we based our discussion on how do we then stand firm in the face of the onslaught of the devil. And we rooted our discussion in Ephesians 6. And we noted how often... Oh, man. That's probably not annoying to you. That's going to annoy me. So we noted how often it says, be strong, stand firm, put on the full armor of God. So we we began a discussion on the armor of God. And we looked at the first three. So beginning in verse 14, it says, stand firm then in the face of the devil's attacks and the devil's schemes. Put on the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness, and then verse 15, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And so kind of the 
the approach that we took in our discussion was this. We looked at the piece of armor. What is the piece of armor? Then how does Satan attack us in light of that piece of armor? Or what is that piece of armor trying to protect us from? How does Satan's attack injure us? And then how can we grow to stand firm in in the face of more attacks? So that was our approach. And here's kind of a speedy review of the uh, the first three. So the belt of truth. I said that I think the belt of truth refers to sound doctrine or believing what is right. And Satan tries to attack us by corrupting good doctrine, by corrupting sound doctrine. And we said that the way Satan's attack has a tendency to injure us is that if he can corrupt what we believe, that will ultimately lead to corrupt behavior. So we said bad theology leads to bad behavior. So what we believe will affect how we behave. So how can we try to stand firm to grow in our our steadfastness in that area? Well, we are all theologians. We need to not be scared of theology. We need to be rooted and grounded in good theology. And if I could put it this way, you need to join a church that has good theology because the church is the pillar and support of the truth. It is the place where you get good, sound theology. So you need to be a member of a place like this that can keep you accountable and keep you rooted in the right theology. Then we talked about the breastplate of righteousness, and I said that this is practical righteousness or obedience, and and Satan tries to sow seeds of temptation. And even though I said that temptation is ultimately rooted in us, he dangles these lovely carrots in front of us that that make our eyes bulge, and and, and we are enticed by this own junky nastiness of our own hearts by those things that he holds in front of us. And so, how does that injure us? Sin tends to beget sin. It gives birth to more sin. Sin, as Hebrews says, entangles us. So once we get in its nasty grip, it just continues to bury us and bury us and bury us. And oftentimes, the only way we think we can get out of that sin is by sinning more. And that's not the appropriate response. The appropriate response is to be who we are. Ephesians 4 goes at length to talk about how you should put off falsehood, you should put off lying, you should put off all this stuff, and you should put on all this stuff, because you are already like that in God's eyes in the heavenlies. There's this already and not yet tension which we've talked about. You are already declared righteous, but the ethic of the Christian life in the New Testament is we need to act and be who we already are. Now, that'll blow your mind, and that's okay. It blows my mind too. But that's that's what we have to be. We have to try to live up to the righteous standard that Jesus Uh, that we have already been declared to be in Jesus. So be who we are. And then the gospel of peace. And I believe this is where we spend a lot of time discussing. The gospel of peace, I think, is the confidence in the fact that we are at peace with God, that we have been forgiven, that we are loved. And Satan likes to get at us by attacking or by accusing us. And this is different than the Spirit's conviction. You see, when we sin, often Satan's accusations of us are true, right? 
you dirty, rotten sinner. You did this. I can't believe that you're so such an angry fool, that you have such a hot temper. And he just, he hones in on true things that exist in us. But the difference between Satan's accusation and the Spirit's conviction is, is one of destiny. Because Satan's accusation try to get you away from God. Where the Spirit's conviction is saying, you dirty, rotten sinner, God's forgiven you. Come to Him, the person who is full of grace. And the Spirit is trying to restore fellowship. And so Satan, his attack is is really good and subtle, and it seeks to destroy our fellowship with God. So we need to not only be who we are, like the last one, but we need to know who we are, that we have peace with God because we are in Jesus Christ. We are justified. Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We cannot be condemned. We cannot, Romans 8, be separated from the love of God. Nothing can separate us because we are in His Son, in Christ. So that brings us in a very rapid way up to where we need to pick up from last week. So I'm going to just put this up again, and this is kind of how we're going to cycle through the last three pieces of armor for lesson 10's discussion. All right? So the next piece of armor that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6 is the shield of faith. So what is the shield of faith? I think that the shield of faith is practical, everyday trust in God. Practical, everyday trust in God. I'm not talking here about saving faith. I'm talking about practical, everyday trust in God. And Satan's attack in our trust in God is speculation. Is speculation. Think back to the Genesis 3 account of Satan's temptation of Eve. What was his mode of operation there? It was just to cast seeds of doubt, right? To, to cause Eve to speculate whether or not what God was saying was true, whether it was fully right, whether he was going to make good on his end of the deal. And so Satan just caused her to speculate, to doubt God's goodness, God's wisdom, God's trustworthiness. So the shield of faith is practical, everyday trust in God. Trust in who He is, what He says, and what He does. And Satan, Satan's attack is speculation. So how do you think that injures us? So when Satan caught, uh, casts doubt on God, how do you think that that injures us? Because it takes us away from God. Okay. That's the question. Okay. Whether or not what he says is what he right. So that means what he did with Adam and Eve. So, God doesn't want you to know the truth. Right. So if Satan is telling you, well, God's not trustworthy, then who's Satan telling you to trust? Him or yourself. Or yourself. 
What does Jeremiah 17 say about yourself? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So outside of Satan, one of the last people that I should probably want to trust is myself. So I mentioned at the the first one, the belt of truth, that we need to believe the right things. So what we believe matters. But not only what we believe matters, but who we believe matters. So who we believe is going to affect our behavior, right? Not just what we believe. What we believe will affect our behavior, but who we believe. So if I believe, for instance, that I can, I believe in myself. I believe in the theology of my own making. That when push comes to shove in my life and I start feeling stressed about something and I start trusting in myself, my stress is not going to be going away (laughs) because I'm an idiot and I'm a doofus and I don't make right choices all the time and I don't make enough money and I don't have a skill set, all the skills that I want. And all of a sudden I put enormous pressure on me, let's say, to make ends meet. And I'm trusting in myself and the standards that I have. But when I trust in God, who says in Matthew 6 that my heavenly Father cares for me more than he cares even for the sparrow or the lilies of the field, and that he will provide the things that I need, and I stop trusting myself, who is anything but... Or, or is, is, is basically a roller coaster, an up and down yo yo. I can trust in God who is always there, who knows my need before I even need it, and He can provide and meet my needs. You see, who I trust results or alters my behavior. If I trust in myself, I worry, I stress, I don't believe God. But if I trust God, I don't worry. I seek his, his agenda, his kingdom first, not my own. So how can we stand firm against this attack of Satan? For he casts doubt on us and he causes us to speculate. Dana, you got a smirk. You look like you want to say something. I've already been, no, I've been warned. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> this isn't a trick question, I promise. This isn't, how can we grow in this area of, of Satan trying to get us to doubt God? How can we protect ourselves from that? Okay. Fellowship with other believers. Okay. Daily, you know, being involved in the Word of God. Okay. You know, well, I was going to say daily, but to be involved yeah. in the Word of God. Uh, to be learning proper doctrines, beliefs, so that when He throws other things to you, you can see the fallacies. Sure. It is. 
So Hebrews 12 comes to mind where it says that we're supposed to lay aside all the, the junk of life, right? And so we could even be laying aside good things, but there's things that entangle us or weigh us down. And the sin that so easily entangles us. And then he says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So there's a sense in which how do we, uh, how do we combat Satan trying to cast doubt on God. We fix our eyes on God. We fix our eyes on the object of our faith. Who is the object of our faith? It's God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And there's three qualities. I think I think it's Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God. He notes these three qualities of God that I would highly recommend to you to keep in your mind when you are when you are tempted to doubt God. God is wise. God is good and God is powerful. God is wise, God is good, and God is powerful. And you have to have all three. Because think about it, if God is wise, but he's he's not powerful, then he knows what's best, but he can't do it. Well, that's no good. And if he is powerful, but he's not wise, well, then he's got all the power in the world, but he might not be doing things in a really, in, in, in the best way possible. And if he's powerful, not wise, and he's not good, that means he, he has all the power, but he's this ruthless tyrant who can squash you at any second of the day, anytime he wants, because he's not working all things together for your spiritual good. Yikes. Or he's good, but he doesn't have the power to accomplish his good. So all three things have to be incorporated. And our God is wise, good, and powerful. That means he has the capability to exact his wise plan to accomplish your good in everything. He can even take, this is what's so mind-blowing to me, he can even take the sinful choices that we make in life and use those things to teach us and to make us more like Christ. Holy cow. It's probably not a good filler (laughs) word, right? Because cows aren't really holy. But do you know what I'm saying? That is an amazing, amazing thing that God Almighty can orchestrate everything for our good, for our spiritual growth. That's what I mean when I say good. So then we have the helmet of salvation. Whoops, wrong one. The helmet of salvation, which is the certain hope of eternal salvation. The helmet of salvation, the certain hope of eternal salvation. And I think Satan's attack here is distraction. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24, talk about storing up treasures here on earth. And then he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The helmet of salvation, the certain hope of eternal salvation, it's a forward-looking view. It's a heavenward view. How does that injure us? It gets our minds off 
the prize, right, for which we are pressing on. And it gets our minds on temporal things, things of our own kingdoms that we're building here rather than the kingdom that he's building. So how can we stand firm? Colossians 3 says that we are to set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Then the last one, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And of all the other ones, maybe I've offered an opinion as to what that one is. But this one, Paul explicitly states, this is, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and Satan's attack is isolation, or maybe you'd call it disconnection. He tries to disconnect, get you disconnected from the Word. Why would he do that? Because he knows that the Word is the means through which the Holy Spirit, or what the Spirit uses, to sanctify you, right? Because if we go all the way back to our discussions on progressive sanctification, we said progressive sanctification is the cooperative work of God and the Spirit through the Word, whereby we are becoming more and more like Jesus, right? So, God puts effort into it. We put effort into it. It's a cooperative work. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ken did an amazing sermon on the doctrine of sanctification. If you weren't here, you should go listen to it. Because he did a way better job than we've done in this class. So listen to it. And it'll say the same thing. It's a cooperative work. But it's it's rooted in in, in the Word of God. So how can we grow? How can we stand firm in the face of Satan's attack to disconnect us and isolate us from the Word of God. Okay, well, discipline, right? Discipline yourself to be in the Word. So moms with kids, I don't know how you got to work that out, but that's a really hard one, right? I know that, you know, Mallory, I mean, she's... That's a, and I'm not saying, I'm not throwing her under the bus. The reality is that, I mean, we have two little kids that are like constant. Perfect. Perfect. Constantly perfect. Crazies, you know? Our house is nuts, and we love it. But I sit there and I see, man, to find time as a mom with little kids, how in the world do you do that? Unless you get up, the butt crack it on, or you stay up really late, you know? That, that's pro- I mean, everyone knows that that's the hardest job in the world, right? So, yeah. So discipline, but what about connecting yourself to a local assembly? Right? Because what happens just about every time you come here? Sunday mornings, what do we do? The main thing of our worship service is what? We hear Pastor Ken open up the pages of God's Word and say, Thus says the Lord. And then what do we do the next hour? We listen to him open up the Word on a given topic, and here's what God says. And then what do we do on Wednesday nights? We come and we open up God's Word, even though it's in a topical fashion. We say, what in the world does God say about stuff? So, if you want to disconnect yourself from the Word, stop going to church. 
if you want to put yourself in the prime place for Satan just to nail you, disconnect yourself from the local assembly. You want to protect yourself by standing firm, connect yourself to his word through your own personal discipline and the discipline of church attendance and membership. So, after we just blitzed our way through all of this, as you go through this week, try to identify areas of weakness in your own life based on the armor that we've looked at. Do you have areas of doctrine where you're shaky that you need to shore up because Satan is going to try to come and corrupt that? Are there areas in your life where you are giving way and you're disobeying God? Where you're allowing Satan to tempt you and sin is just begetting sin and begetting sin and it's entangling you. Go through the list. Think through what we've talked about. Try to identify areas of weakness and areas where Satan might be able to attack you. And then try to figure out a game plan to, to, to shore up those areas so that you can stand firm in the face of Satan's temptation. He is going to attack you and his schemes are really good. So we need to not underestimate him. We need to recognize, yikes, we need to stand firm. And so work through that and and we can work together through it. So now, lesson 11. So lesson 11, how many of you, this is, do I need to like make you close your eyes? How many of you did your homework? Just just, just out of curiosity. I'm not, there's, this is not, I'm not going to slap anyone's wrist. My dad didn't even do his homework. Wow. Um, We have homework? So that means Jimmy didn't either. (laughs) Jim doesn't even have a book, apparently. I don't. So lesson 11, overall it was a, um, if you go back and you read the article, it was overall it was a pretty good article. Um, every you know, there's always things where you're like, yeah, I wish you would have said something this way. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what he said in the article, but I, the the topic <laughs> is such an enormous topic, and frankly, it could be a really debatable one. Um, so we're gonna. I just want to build down your expectations of the next 30 minutes, okay? I'm not going to be able to give you um, a lot of awesome answers that you can walk out and be like, yay, Troy solved all the world's problems tonight. (laughs) That's not going to happen. In fact, I'll probably just instigate more because that's my spiritual gift. And so, um, but I just want to build down your expectations. I'm going to try to keep it simple. Um, and possibly too simple, um, and we'll see. Hopefully, it will be some benefit and help. So, our goal for this lesson is to discover how to make God honoring decisions, God honoring decisions in a sinful world, and how to relate to those with whom we disagree. So, our goal is twofold tonight to discover how to make God-honoring decisions, and then 
how to relate to those with whom we disagree. And you might think, well, those sound like two really different things. But they're really not, because a lot of times decisions are really cut and dry, right? Don't murder. Okay, we got that one. And so there's not any debate. But a lot of times when you consider the title of this lesson, Lifestyle Choices, every one of us have different lifestyle choices that we make. And there's a really good chance that we disagree on a lot of those. We might not disagree wholeheartedly, but we probably disagree on some things. So we need to consider, well, how do we work through those disagreements? Let me give you a couple passages. You can just write them down while I read them. But I want to press home just a little bit before we dive in. Why is this even important? Why is it important? Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then verse 10 says, And find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. That is, we must scrutinize, we must scrape scrap. We must be a detective to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We must work hard. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, so regardless of what you're doing, do it all for what? The glory of God. So whatever we do, We have to be figuring out what is pleasing to the Lord. What is pleasing to the Lord? Doing everything for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Paul writes, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And then listen, and he says, And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So not only ought we to externally figure out what is pleasing to God. But Paul is saying that even the inside, our thoughts must be taken captive. They must be held hostage and reined in and checked to make sure that even our thoughts are being obedient to Christ, that they are comparing to the standard of obedience to our Savior. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. This is in the context of testing prophetic spirits but I think that the principle can be expanded uh, across the board in that text 1 Thessalonians 5 21 through 22 says this but examine everything or test everything examine everything carefully holding fast to that which is good abstaining from every form of evil so here's the thought So everything that comes my way, I have a decision to make. Something on TV or a decision I got to make to what I want to do, how I want to respond, how I want to react, etc., etc. I must examine it. What am I going to do? I must examine it carefully and thoroughly to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Is this pleasing to the Lord? If it's not, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to abstain. 
I'm supposed to pull a Joseph. What did Joseph do? When he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he got up and ran. So if it's bad, you abstain. If it's good, you give it a bear hug. Right? You hold on to that thing as tight as you can. You hold fast. You cling as if you're falling off a cliff and you grab somebody's arm and you better believe you got a death grip on that thing. So when you filter everything through, we examine everything, we cling to the good, we abhor what is evil, we run. So with those texts in mind, I'd like to provide to you a, a grid. This is not an inspired grid, okay? But this is a grid to help us make God-honoring decisions in our life. And I'm putting it all up there because I know that once you write it all down, then you won't pay attention to what I have to say. And so you can all go to sleep and I'm just being kind. So a four-step grid, I don't, I don't think I would hold tightly to the order. It's just the order I put them in. I don't... Like I said, I don't think this is an inspired list. But how do you, how do we make a decision that honors God? <clears throat> well, I think we can look at any activity, any event, any th- any decision that we have in life. Where do we send our kids to school? You can tell I'm just using examples now from my life, right? But like, so where do we send our kids to school? Or do we buy that car? Or whatever your thing is. How much money do we spend for Christmas? Is buying five toys too much or too? How do you make the right decision? Should we enroll our kids in this extracurricular sports activity? Well, it's going to keep us from community group. Uh, well, I mean community group. It's not. Uh, what do you do? How do you make God-honoring decisions? So, number one, what do my authorities say about this? What do my authorities say about this? And there's four A's. Authority, allegiance, ally, and ambassador. You keep those things in your mind. Right? That's the words I chose to help you out. So, what do my authorities say? Well, what's the chief authority above all for a believer? What's the, it's the word of God, right? So Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 says that God breathed, God inspired his word, and it's useful for a bunch of things. It's profitable for what? Its end game is that we would be mature, that we would be Christ-like. And it's useful. It's got its own prescribed way of accomplishing that by teaching, telling us what we believe, by rebuking, correcting, and teaching us how to live. So this should be our first stop, right? And when we read the Word, and when you read the Word, we all notice that, okay, well, there's some things that's really clear, right? So God provides direct commands, like... Colossians 3, where he says, do not lie to each other. Okay, we got that one, right? So, when Hadley decides she wants to lie, because she's kind of into that right now, we can clearly say, Hadley, that is a lie. You must tell the truth. If 
you continue to lie, you will get a timeout. Okay? That's a clear one, right? Like, thou shalt not murder. Okay, we have that one, right? Okay, but what about if you want to watch a show on TV? God didn't say, thou shalt not watch CSI Miami reruns on Netflix. I confess I like that because it has super cool colors. Okay, so God doesn't give us chapter and verse for that one, right? I can't believe I just admitted that, by the way. Yeah, so there's direct commands, but there's also indirect principles, right? Where God doesn't give us an exact sign to say, do this, don't do this. Some, and, I'll, and frankly, in most things, he doesn't give us a thou shalt, thou shalt not. He gives us principles. So for instance, Psalm 101.3 says, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. So here's this really big principle that we now have to figure out a way to apply. And this, right here, is where much of the debate comes. Okay, so my dad applies it one way, I apply it another way, and you apply it one way, and you apply it a different way. And then all of a sudden, we have a bunch of differing opinions, and we got to figure out a way to get along when you have your standard and I have mine. And we'll get into that second half. So number one, what? What was that uh, Psalm 101.3. That would be an example of an indirect principle. So we have, what do my authorities say? Now the word of God isn't your only only authority, right? It's your chief authority. But Romans, I think it's Romans 13, says that we have to live under our government. And then Hebrews something, 12, 13, I don't know. Somewhere in Hebrews at the end talks about how we must live under the authority of our, our elders. We must submit to them. And if you're a child living in your parents' home, you have to obey your parents. And even though this isn't like so much authority, like what about your spouse? Right? I mean, like you you're supposed to mutually submit to one another, Ephesians five. So they're there, there's some measure of like, okay, well, what do they have to think about it? So what do my authorities say? The second is, how will this demonstrate and affect my allegiance to God? How will this demonstrate my allegiance to God? And how will this affect my allegiance to God? So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. But I, I root that in Matthew 22, where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and they're saying, hey, what's the greatest commandment? What's the best one? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with everything that you are, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on this, all the law and the prophets hang. So love God. So this is a demonstration of my allegiance. So when I have a decision to make, what does God's word say about it? What do my other authorities say about it? Okay, so now, how is this going to... How does my relationship with God, my love for God, influence this decision? So what is what is love and what is love for God? Love, as Ken has defined, is a decision... 
to seek the good of the other, right? It is, or another way to put it a, a little bit longer is, it is a decision to sacrifice myself for the sake of the person that I love. It is seeking their good. Well, what does that look like with God? Because we can't just like change our definition of love when we get to God, right? That would be inconsistent, not make sense. So how does that definition work? Do you need to go? Yeah. Okay. How does that definition work with God? How do we seek God's good? I mean, God doesn't need us, right? I mean, God doesn't need to be more Christ-like. Right. Yeah. So our love for God is expressed in us sacrificing ourselves for the sake of his good, which is his glory. It's like the Matthew 16, where who, what is a disciple? It's one who denies himself, take us, takes up his cross and follows, follows Jesus. It is the sacrifice of self for the glory of God. So how will this affect my allegiance to God? Will it demonstrate that I am a lover of God or a lover of self? 2 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. There's a a fundamental change that takes place in the life of a person who's converted. There's a love for God. Then number three, how will this affect my allies? So that's the love other people. How is this decision, whatever it might be, how is this going to affect other people? Particularly those that are your brothers and sisters in Christ. So authority, allegiance, allies, and then last, how will this contribute to my testimony as God's ambassador? Second Corinthians 5 talks about us having been given a ministry of reconciliation. We are calling people to be reconciled to God. Those who are enemies, who are far off from God, to be reconciled to God in Christ. Because God is at work making people his servants, making people to live for him and not themselves, making them new creatures. And we are given the privilege of being his ambassadors, his representatives. So when I am making a decision to do X or to not do X, How is either doing it or not doing it going to impact my testimony as God's ambassador? Is it going to contribute to that? Or is it going to minimize that? Maybe another way to put it is this. How how is that going to fit within my mission? How is that going to fit within my mission? So I think if we take all of this we think authority, allegiance, ally, and ambassador. If we just walk through that four-step grid, I'm not saying it, it, it's, it catches everything. I'm sure there's something that can fall through the cracks. But if you and I are to give careful consideration to every decision we make in life, in the sin-cursed world in which we live, and we filter it through those four questions, my hunch is that the good majority of things that we are confronted with The bad junk will be filtered out 
and we can abhor and abstain, and the good stuff we can cling to, and we can make good God-honoring decisions. So, if I could give you kind of like a Pastor Ken take-home truth for that section, here it is. Always and in everything. Remember, examine everything. Let nothing fall through the cracks. So always and in everything, we must relentlessly and carefully pursue God's glory. I think the real stinky part is that sometimes decisions, we face decisions and we don't respond to them, we react. And our reaction is oftentimes the sinful junk of our heart. Right? The idols of our hearts are re- are are often revealed in our reaction to things. You know, the person cutting us off in the road. Like, before we eat, it gets to even the ability to, like, make a decision and to think through it. We're like, ah! Right? Like, I'm driving tonight on the way here, and this guy's going 35 in a 45 zone. I'm like... What's this person doing? I'm like kind of driving on the line, hoping that my lights get in his mirror so maybe he can see it. Maybe I could flash the brights, but I'm not going to do that because there's a ton of people on the other side of the road. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, I'm getting angry, and I'm not even thinking about this. And then I realize, oh my goodness, right? I'm reacting almost in like a just a reflex to thinking deeply about what I'm doing or what I'm going to do and and responding in a God-honoring way. So it plays itself out, not just in big decisions of life. Who should I marry? What college should I go to? What job should I take? Where should I send my kids to school? How much money should I save for retirement? Etc., etc., etc. It even goes to the little decisions of life. Yeah. As- Real quick, I guess, made me think of this. I didn't oh, teach him that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I, I used to sing in a gospel quartet. You know, probably some of you know that, maybe you don't. But uh, one time I was on my way to sing with the quartet, and I was by myself because I had to work that day. So I'm going down 94, heading out to a church in Belleville, and these people are driving like this. I'm on these, They're driving like 45 in a 70 mile zone and, and I'm I gotta get there and I'm tailgating them I'm trying to go around them I'm, and I'm almost to the point of yelling at them you know <laughs> and I said you know something told me no don't yell at these people <clears throat> I get off I go to the church and then I, I pull in I had to come back out to the car for something and the people that were in front of me are pulling into the church <laughs> I'm so I'm so glad that I didn't I could have. I, mean, I could have done all kinds of things. With that. I was so glad I didn't do it because it's like, be sure your sin will find you out. You know? And I didn't learn it from him. So, if that's the first part of our our objective for our discussion, because like I said, the lesson covered way more than this. But so, how do we make God honoring decisions in a, a God forsaken world? So. Think through those four things, and that'll help at least curb a decent amount of stuff, right? Okay, so then we get to, remember I talked about, like, we have these indirect principles, and then the application of those indirect principles are going to look different for you and I. So how do we relate to those with whom we disagree? Yikes, right? 
So this is where um, I would refer you back to the lesson, the, the discussion, or the, whatever you call it, that article in your lesson. But I don't like some of the terms he uses. He talks about stronger brother and weaker brother and a professional something or other. And I'm like, I don't know. It just kind of seemed derogatory to me. Now I know I get it. And this is really small. Okay. So old people, get your glasses out. Just kidding. I can't read it either. So, so just before, oh my goodness. Thank you. So let me, uh, Give you before you worry about writing this down. I can email it to you if you're really concerned. But let me explain what's going on. All right. So let's just take, and I'm not going to elaborate on a particular issue. I hope not, but maybe I will. We'll see. But let's say, for instance, drinking an alcoholic beverage. Okay. So we have either participation or non-participation, right? And then we have the extreme sides of those those issues, right? So we have libertine, which is basically you have the license to do whatever you want. Okay? But let me read what I have up here to explain it or elaborate. So on one side you have, well, I have the freedom because Scripture never like absolutely prohibits drinking alcohol, right? It prohibits drunkenness, right? Now, there's a whole slew of passages that should give us all great pause and caution, right? Because Scripture talks a lot about the negative side of drinking alcohol. But the person who's a libertine would say something like this, or the libertine I would describe as this. He exercises his personal freedom solely on the basis of the absence of a clear prohibition in Scripture. So in other words... Either God said, yep, I can do it, or God never said I can't, and boom, you're full in. So he exercises his personal freedom solely on the basis of the absence of a clear prohibition in Scripture. But here's the kicker. With little regard for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But not only that, holding those more restrictive in conscience as less mature. So the person who is on this libertine side, full participation, at times nearly parading his freedom for all to see, he might have the biblical freedom to do what he's doing, but there's no regard for others. Just, I got the freedom to do this, I'm going to do it, and he is the bastion for freedom. And if you don't have the same freedom and enjoy the same freedom that I have, you're just not, you have not reached the same plateau of maturity that I have. So that's on the participation side, but then you have the non-participation side. And there should be a little line there, but it went away, and I don't know how that went away. So non-participation, then you have the legalist. This one's good, okay? So the legalist judges his Christ-likeness or his godliness on the basis of his adherence to his own personal standards. So he judges his godliness, his Christ-likeness, based on how well he adheres to his own personal standards. But it doesn't just stop there. 
And then he goes on to hold all other Christians to his particular set of standards of holiness. Because we all have our own standards of holiness, right? But then what the legalist does, he says, well, I have my own standards for what is godly. And for you to be godly, you've got to line up with my standards. And if you disagree with my standards, then, well, obviously, clearly, I'm the standard for godliness and you're not. And so if I could say it in other words, he assumes his standards to be the gauge for everybody else. If you drink a glass of alcohol, if you go to a movie, if you dance at a wedding, these are all the good ones, right? If you've (laughs) smoked a cigar, well then, you're just nearly not a Christian. Because my standard is X, Y, or Z. Okay, so then, in the middle, you have what I would describe as the mature. And yes, when I say that, that means I'm saying something immature or negative about the polls. I'm saying something negative about the legalist and something negative about the libertine, that I think that those two sides are unbiblical. Because Paul kind of gets a little feisty, right, at the legalist, and he kind of gets a little feisty at the libertine. The mature response, and this is the key, the mature response to debatable issues. We're not talking about essential gospel, everyone should get this sort of issue, right? We're talking about debatable issues. I think maturity is where we need to be. And here's what I mean by that. You can be a mature participant or you could be a mature non-participant. If you're on the participation side, hey, you recognize that this is a debatable issue and you choose to participate, let's say, you choose to drink a glass of alcohol, not getting drunk because you know that's a clear violation of Scripture, but you choose to drink a glass of alcohol only after you've carefully considered whether or not you think, personally, you can be convinced in your own mind that this is something that I can do in good biblical freedom to the glory of God, I can enjoy this thing. But you're not only just considering the biblical ramifications for you, but you also have to consider the ramifications of your participation on others. But then you have the other side. So the mature non-participant. They still recognize that this issue is a debatable issue, and they might believe that for them, Romans 14, in that realm, they're not convinced in their own mind that this is good, so to them it would be sin if they went ahead and did it. So they might have the biblical freedom to drink a glass of alcohol, but they don't feel convinced in their own mind, therefore they shouldn't go ahead and do it, because if they did, that would be sin. So they say, yep, personally, I have to refrain because I think it's sin, but I realize that it might not be sin for you. Or they might just, like my brother-in-law, we had a talk this over Thanksgiving, he thinks that he is biblically free to have a glass of alcohol, but because of his family history and his his family dynamics, which are not our side, but his side, are all unbelievers... He wants to set a precedent for something. He just wants to figure out a way to be distinct from his family, to show them there's a difference. And so he has just made the conscious choice, I'm not going to drink alcohol. Okay. 
So he chooses not to participate, again, only after careful consideration of both the activity and the ramifications on other people. But the middle, there's a recognition that, hey, you choose to drink, you, I choose not to drink. There's a recognition that might be good for you, it might not be good for me, and we're okay with it. This is difficult, right? Because, I mean, th- this is just way beyond my pay grade, okay? How do we work through this in everyday sort of life? Yikes. What I just want to add, too, when you say others or your allies and all that, it's also your children, too, because yeah. making choices like this or things you watch, people don't realize it affects the children, too. You know, you know not just a yeah. brother. Yeah. And and our children, depending on their age and whether or not they've accepted Christ or not, they could fall under both we're ambassadors to them and or allies, right? I mean, uh, just thinking others generically, they're, they're definitely in that camp. So how do we deal with really in this category? So... How do, I mean, we got to rub shoulders with these people. We go to church with these people. And some people might be balking to say, oh, well, here's the tension that I struggle with. Mallory and I have talked a lot about this. So we're supposed to be living for others, yet we're not supposed to be living for the approval of others. Right? And I think that's where there's this really difficult tension that we have to wade through personally because I think it's actually sinful if we're living living for the approval of others I think it's uh, Ephesians 6 I think I know it in like the King James or something but it's something like not with eye service as men pleasers but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart the point is and all that technical old English language, it's my life is not to be lived for the approval of others. Yet, it's undeniably clear in Scripture that our love for God is demonstrated by a love for others. Philippians 2 talks heavily about I am not to do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but I should esteem all other people more highly than myself. There is a service that I must be doing for other people. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-24. This text is actually one of the chief texts that talks about biblical freedom. And Paul writes there, and this is in quotes, I have the right to do anything you say. So he's going to say that twice, and it's in quotes. It's basically Paul is writing and saying, Hey, will you Corinthians say, Well, I have the right to do anything. And then his response is, But not everything is beneficial. Okay, fine, you might have the right to do that, but is it really beneficial to do that? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I have the right, you say, to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And here's where he's going. He says, verse 24, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And if you boil the whole passage down, it's that. Not everything 
Even though everything you might have the right to do, at the end of the day, you've got to filter it all back to verse 31, which says, so whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. What is glorifying God? It is doing good for others. You esteem others more highly than yourself. Now, how does that work out in all the difficult decisions that we have to make? I don't know. <laughs> you got to deal with that one on your own. But I can at least try to give you some biblical principles and paradigms to think through. So if I could boil it all down, I would say this. That we want to learn how to deal with the tensions. We want to deal with the legalist and the, the libertine. We want to deal with the mature participant and non-participant. We've got to be humble and we've got to love each other deeply. We've got to do Philippians 2 work, James chapter 4 work, where we must submit ourselves, put ourselves in the right rank. We must esteem others more highly than ourselves. We must do 1 Peter 1, where we must love each other deeply from the heart. We must have an enduring attachment to one another. And if we can allow our our minds to be governed by humility and love, that that, then that means when someone comes up to me and says, hey, Troy, I saw you drinking. You know, and that just really, that really concerns me. And they share their non-participation view. I, they're coming to me, Lord willing, in humility and love, and then I'm going to be receiving what they have to say in humility and love, recognizing we might just have to walk away and agree to disagree. But if humility and love are the governing attributes between two brothers and sisters in Christ, then we can actually have constructive relationships that help. Because I'm looking out for your best interest and you're looking out for mine. I think that humility and love have to be our guides when we're dealing with this kind of stuff. Anything to add? I just think that Romans 14, which you brought up, is very helpful. At least it was to me in thinking through this stuff. Um, Can I just read three verses? Verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on on another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And then on to verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That just kind of puts it into perspective what we're supposed to be worrying about as far as the kingdom of God goes. And then last, um, verse 22 says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And I I kind of take that as when it comes to these things that can be, you know, I guess I'd call it a gray area or we can disagree on. Um, instead of arguing about it, if we're supposed to not be stumbling blocks, obviously, but this faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. You don't have to demand someone else to, you know, right. believe the same thing that you do. Yeah. Alright, let's pray. And then we accomplished it all. Three minutes over time. Not bad. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you would help us to be humble, that we would love, that we would submit ourselves to each other, because we know that that is what brings you glory. In your name we pray. Thank you.